We return this morning to our studies in the Gospel of Matthew, opening today to the fifth chapter. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus goes up on a mountain in verse 1 and begins the most famous of all his sermons, and indeed the most famous sermon that ever was preached, which has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is a manifesto on what it looks like to walk with Christ. A manifesto on how Jesus desires his people to live their lives as, lives as kingdom citizens in this world. Remember we said last week that when we repent of our sins and entrust ourselves to Christ the King, we are no longer merely citizens of the United States, but now also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Citizens of a whole new realm with its own laws and with its own plans for our well-being and with its own king, Jesus, who demands our highest level of allegiance. And while this Sermon on the Mount is, of course, not the only place where we learn how to live as citizens of that kingdom, it is certainly one of the more famous places because it's one of the more memorable and beautiful And one of the things that makes the Sermon on the Mount so memorable and beautiful is that the laws of this kingdom are so very different from and so counterintuitive to how our human natures and thus how our human kingdoms often tend to want to function. Love your enemies, chapter 5, verse 44. Treat people, chapter 7, verse 12. Not the same way they treat you, but the same way you want them to treat you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, chapter 6, verse 19. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, chapter 5, verse 28, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not the standard fare on talk radio, is it? This is not the way the world tends to think. And it's not the way that we think either when left to our natural proclivities. And so we mustn't leave ourselves to those natural tendencies. And we mustn't get our goals and our ethics either from the chatter around the lunch tables at work or from the popular song lyrics pulsating all around us or from the winsome prose in the magazine rack or from the lifestyle that is portrayed to us on television. We must rather be constantly informed by this book if we are to live faithfully as citizens of God's kingdom. And we must remind ourselves often of the teachings Jesus sets forth in this sermon, which, Lord willing, we will look into over these next several Sundays in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And of course, we must not only look into the Sermon on the Mount, but we must act on what our King requires, even if it demands radical changes in our routines and behaviors, and it probably will over these next weeks. May God grant us to make those changes in the weeks that are ahead. And we begin these weeks in the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 5 this morning and in verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they 
shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, may it be that as we hear your word today, we would be drawn, we would be wooed to live this blessed life. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Concerning this portion of scripture, concerning these beatitudes, as we call these eight blessings of Jesus here, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, probes us with a challenging set of questions. He writes, What is your heart set on as vital for your life and character? What eight things do you want to see developed in your life? Perhaps, he says, it would be a good idea for you to make a list. Does it compare favorably with what Jesus says? Does it include poverty of spirit, meekness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, a peacemaking spirit, and a willingness to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus? Or do you think, he says, that real blessing is really to be found elsewhere? That's a challenging set of questions indeed. If you'd have sat down some evening in the last week with just the first two of those questions, what is your heart set on as vital for your life and character? What eight things do you want to see developed in your life? And if you'd not known that those questions came from a book on the Sermon on the Mount and from a section on the Beatitudes so that you wouldn't be tempted to just give the default Sunday school answers, if you'd have sat down and if I'd have sat down sometime in the last few days and just honestly answered Ferguson's initial two questions, what is your heart set on as vital for your life and character? What eight things do you want to see developed in your life? How might we have responded? Are our hearts set on that which Jesus says is important, on those character traits that Christ calls blessed. I don't know about you, but I'm rebuked by Ferguson's questions and thus by these beatitudes themselves, the importance of which his questions helped me to see. Because as I think about it, had I engaged in the exercise that Ferguson suggests, writing down eight characteristics that I would like to see developed in my life, and had I done so honestly, and not knowing that he was then going to suggest that I compare my list to the Beatitudes, I'm not sure my list would have approximated nearly as much as it should have to the traits that Jesus sets forward here in verses 3 through 12. I might have listed things like self-confidence and order. That's what I want in my life. Instead of things like poverty of spirit and mercy And maybe you would have had some poor trade-offs like that in your list as well. 
It's easy to criticize the name it and claim it crowd for not having an accurate biblical understanding of the blessed life. But Ferguson's questions ask us to probe ourselves as to whether we understand it, as to whether we understand the blessed life. Do we desire the eight qualities for ourselves, poverty of spirit, mourning, gentleness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, and a willingness to be persecuted for Christ's sake? Do we desire these qualities for ourselves? Or do we think, asks Ferguson, that real blessing is really to be found elsewhere? May it be that we would be stirred today. May it be that we would be wooed today to live out this lovely portrait of Christianity that Jesus paints for us on the canvas here of verses 3 through 12. And let me say that we should be wooed to live it out, drawn to live this out, not least because these qualities in and of themselves, mercy, peacemaking, purity in heart, and so on, are beautiful qualities, both to God and hopefully to ourselves as well. But then we should also be wooed into this lifestyle because Jesus doesn't simply command poverty of spirit and mourning and mercy and so on, but he says that those who possess these qualities are blessed. And he tells us specifically how they are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. We should be drawn to this. So let's think now about each of these attractive qualities and about the specific blessings attached to them. And there are eight of them, which means that we buckle up now for an eight-point sermon. I'll try to have eight brief points um, after a fairly long introduction. Let's get busy now and dive right in, beginning with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, i.e., as the NASB footnote says, those who are not spiritually arrogant. Those, in other words, who are humble before the Lord. Those who realize how weak they really are, how spiritually needy they really are, how dependent they really are on God's grace. The poor in spirit are not like the Pharisee in Jesus' story in Luke 18 who stood and was praying to himself praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get, all that I get. No, the poor in spirit are rather like the tax collector who was unwilling, who was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The poor in spirit knows that she is, in the words of Augustus' top lady, a debtor to mercy. The poor in spirit realizes that he's a sinner, realizes that he cannot save himself, realizes that he cannot even change himself without God's help, even as a believer. The poor in spirit, therefore, is dependent upon God for mercy and is content to come to God as a spiritual beggar. And the man or woman, the boy or girl, who is poor in spirit is blessed, says Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, Jesus is not saying here that poverty of spirit, humility before God somehow earns heaven. Sinners that we are, there is nothing that we can do to earn heaven, which is one of the things that the poor in spirit realize. And so this is not a tit-for-tat blessing where God grants us some payoff in exchange for our being good in this particular way. The point, rather, is that since the kingdom of heaven is a gift, since the kingdom of heaven is something that cannot be earned, but that must be received as a grant of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, you will only be able to receive such a gift and truly receive it as a gift and not as something you think you've earned if you are poor in spirit. If you accept the fact that you're a spiritual beggar. So it's not that poverty of spirit earns heaven, but that poverty of spirit is humble enough to admit that we can't earn heaven and thus to rely upon God's charity to grant it as a free gift, paid in full by the merits of his son. And I ask you today whether your spirit is that poor, whether you've come to a place of realizing that you are and always will be a beggar before the Lord desperate for him to grant you in Christ mercy, forgiveness, eternal life that you'll never, ever deserve. Such a spirit is blessed, not after the manner of earning anything from God, but precisely because it humbly admits that we can't, and it looks to him like blind Bartimaeus, desperate for the Lord's mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't think Jesus is speaking here of any and all mourning, but of godly mourning, of mourning over sin, and also of a God-centered mourning over the effects of sin in this world. There is mourning that is not God-centered, where we mourn over the wrong things, or where we mourn over the right things, But do not turn to God for comfort, but rather to idols, or to despair, or to anger, or to self-pity, or to self-reliance, or what have you. And I don't believe the blessing here is promised to such mourners who mourn wrongly. But when a person mourns, when a person grieves for God's sake, over the ugliness of her sin or his sin, over the affront that that sin is to our maker, such a person will find comfort in the message of Christ and his cross. The person who truly grieves over his or her sin will find comfort in the message of forgiveness, full and free, in Christ Jesus. And when a person mourns God-centeredly over the effects of sin in this world, grieving the right kinds of things and turning truly to God in his or her grief, when a person grieves in that way over the effects of sin in the world, whether his own sin or the sins of others or just the curse of sin in general with its cancers and its hurricanes and its car wrecks, when such a person grieves God-centeredly over these things, he or she can rest assured that there will be comfort for that morning as well. There's comfort for that kind of mourning, of course, even in this life, what with God's precious and magnificent promises, all of which are yes in Jesus, and many of which are tailored to give us hope in the midst of our sorrows. And then, of course, those who grieve with genuine hope in God are the same people 
who've hoped in God for their salvation and who through Christ will live forever in that place in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. There is cause for grief and mourning in this life. And when I speak of God-centered grief, I don't mean to insinuate that such grief does not involve real personal pain. God-centered grief grieves over the effects of sin in this world, not only for God's sake, yes, but also with personal lament and sorrow that is included as well. God-centered in grief includes grief for God's sake, grief that God has grieved over sin and its effects, but it also includes personal pain that is brought to God rather than attempting to solve it with man's solutions. And when we grieve in that way over the effects of sin in this world, the difficulty that is in this life, or when we grieve for God's sake over our actual sins themselves against him, there will be comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Talk more about gentleness, Lord willing, in a couple of Wednesday nights as part of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. But suffice it to say for now that gentleness is a thoroughly biblical quality for all Christians. Not only for women and girls in whose lives a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says, is precious in the sight of God. But for all Christians, men and boys too, are to be gentle or meek, as some translations put it. It's here in the Beatitudes, after all, and it's a part of the fruit of the Spirit as well. So gentleness, meekness is for us all. And the gentle, Jesus says here in verse 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek, the gentle, shall inherit the earth, which perhaps sounds crazy at first. Because it seems like sometimes those who are running the place, those who are in charge of things here on planet earth, are the forceful, the powerful, not the gentle, not the meek. But I think Jesus, when he speaks of the gentle inheriting the earth, is speaking long term. I think he's referencing the new earth. It is those who exhibit the fruit of gentleness or meekness in some translations who will finally be the inheritors of the earth in that day, that final day. Not because being meek or gentle is what makes one a Christian and therefore is a way of somehow earning a place in God's eternal kingdom. It's not. But when a person becomes a Christian, by God's grace, when a person is made an inheritor of eternal life through Christ, he or she is brought into a relationship with God whereby God begins to smooth off the rough edges and to make that person more and more gentle, more and more meek. And such people by virtue of Christ, will inherit the earth by virtue of his salvation of them. And such meek people will not only inherit the earth through Christ someday, but they will inherit it meekly. We will not inhabit the new earth someday because we conquered it, but because God gave it to us after we waited patiently, gently, meekly on him. So blessed are the gentle, 
for they shall inherit the earth. And then verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are many things in life for which you might crave, for which you might hunger, for which you might thirst. Some of them are good things. Some of them sometimes might be bad things. Some of them could be good or bad, depending on various circumstances and motives. And some of those hungers may indeed be satisfied in your life. And some of the things you crave for and hope for and long for will not be satisfied. Some of your thirsts in life will be slaked and some of them will not. But one sort of craving that is always good and that will, on the authority of Christ's word here, always be satisfied is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. A craving to be right with God and a craving to do right by God. In every case of every person who desires those things, that hunger, that thirst will be satisfied. Do you truly desire to be right with God? To be forgiven of your sins? To be counted righteous in His courtroom? I'm not asking, hear this carefully, I'm not asking if you wish you could make yourself right with God, for that's an impossibility, and that is an evidence of our pride. I'm asking if you desire Him, by His mercy, to declare you right in His sight. God has made provision for the satisfaction of that desire through the sinless life and the sacrificial death and the resurrection of His Son so that whoever believes in Him will be forgiven of sins and will be declared right in God's sight based on the merits of Jesus on His or her behalf. And God has also made provision that all those who have been declared right with Him through Christ will also, by the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, become more and more righteous in their actual thoughts and behaviors. He has made provision for us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you desire, first of all, to be right with God, and then also subsequently to begin to do right by God, God has made provision for you, and your craving will be fulfilled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then verse 7. Blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. Now here's one about which we need to talk carefully. We need to say, first of all, that God's saving mercy, God's grace to us in Christ, God's not dealing with us as our sins deserve, our receipt of His mercy is not merited by us in any way. He saved us, Titus 3, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. We're not saved on the basis of what we have done, not even on the basis of deeds of mercy, the deeds of mercy that Jesus pronounces blessed here in verse 7. Jesus is not saying in verse 7 that God will be savingly merciful to you, that God will forgive your sins and save your soul based on how merciful you are to others. 
And while we must be careful to make that clear based on what we know from the scriptures as a whole, we must also be careful not to rob this beatitude of its intended force. Jesus does mean what he says here in verse 7 when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what gives? If Jesus means what he says here, and yet if our salvation is not by works, not even the work of showing mercy to other people, what is verse 7 really saying? Well, we need to note that when God mercifully saves a person, just as he begins to smooth off the rough edges and to make that person more gentle, as we said a few moments ago, so he also begins to work in them the quality of mercy. The quality of mercy toward others that they themselves have been shown in Christ and by Christ and by the Father. And while that mercy shown toward others does not earn God's mercy toward us, it certainly is one evidence that we have received God's mercy because now we're extending it to others. And here's the hard-hitting upshot of that from here in verse 7. It is only those who, by extending mercy toward others, give evidence that they have received God's mercy themselves who can be confident that they will stand in God's mercy on the last day. It is only those who, by extending mercy toward others, give evidence that they have received God's mercy themselves, who can be confident that they will, be, that they will stand in God's mercy on the last day. Again, not because our showing of mercy earns God's saving mercy, but because if we don't evidence that we know God's mercy ourselves by extending it to others, then we probably haven't received that mercy ourselves. And thus, unless we repent, we aren't going to be standing in that mercy in the day of judgment either. And so what Jesus says here stands and is forceful. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those whose thoughts are clean, whose motives are without guile, whose intentions and emotions and affections are godly, are pure. Pure in heart. It's one thing to do the right things outwardly, and we should. It's one thing to say the right things outwardly, and we should to the extent that we're not being dishonest in doing so. But to actually think and feel and want what is right in our hearts, that's much more rare, isn't it? But if we are in Christ, If we have been born of the Spirit, then God is working into our hearts, slowly but surely, purity in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our wills, and so on. Now, we don't always feel like that. In fact, sometimes it may seem to you like the longer you've been a Christian, the worse you feel about yourself. And sometimes it may be that we're backsliding and need to be alarmed by that feeling worse and worse about ourselves. But oftentimes, that sense that the longer I'm a Christian, the worse I feel about myself may not be a sign that we're actually getting worse, but that our hearts are actually becoming more and more pure. 
Because the reason we feel worse about our sins often is not because our sins are worse, but because the purer God is making our hearts, the more he is sanctifying us within, the more we recognize how bad our sins are and how many they are. So that things that never bothered us before we met Christ or things maybe that didn't even bother us after we met Christ or things that only bothered us a little bit in our earlier Christian walk now seem much worse to us. Not that they necessarily are worse. In fact, they may be getting better. We may be growing more like Christ in these ways. But just as a little girl in a pretty white dress pays a lot more notice to a tiny splash of mud than a boy who's been rolling in the grass for the last half hour might pay to an entire puddle of mud, so the Christian, whose heart is much more pure than it once was, notices lesser sins now even more than he noticed greater ones before. And it's a blessing to have such a heart even if it makes sin all the more painful to us. Because it is the pure in heart who will see God, who will go to heaven, who will live with him in the new earth. Again, not because a pure heart earns salvation, it doesn't. And we're glad of that, aren't we? Since none of our hearts are completely pure in this world. It's not, I say, that a pure heart earns salvation, that a pure heart merits the right to see God. But it is evidence that God has already saved us, that we have already come to know God in this life, and that we will therefore see him face to face in the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of peace. The gospel brings peace between God and man. And the gospel also brings peace between man and man. And man and woman and woman and woman and so on. The gospel brings peace between people. The gospel brings Jew and Gentile who might not normally have much in common and who might even sometimes be at a little bit of loggerheads about certain things in the ancient world, the gospel brings Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2, together into one and the same family of God. And the gospel does the very same thing for black and white and young and old and poor and rich and native and international and on and on and on we could go. And the gospel, because it teaches us to show toward others the mercy that God has shown toward us in Christ, the gospel is also a peace agent when two people are at odds, not because of some cultural difference, but because of some offense or some sin or some misunderstanding or some hurt. And blessed are those, Jesus says, who work to make this kind of gospel peace between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, between young and old, between offended parties, and so on. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Their peacemaking shall be evidence of who their father is. God is the ultimate peacemaker, having sent his son into the world to shed his blood to make peace between himself and his wayward people and between men and men as well. And when we go about as peacemakers, it will be obvious that the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, that we are sons and daughters of the peacemaking God. 
And let us not forget, too, to be ambassadors of peace, not only between men and men, but by proclaiming the gospel by which men, women, girls, and boys may accept God's terms of peace with himself. In all these ways, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then finally, verses 10, 11, and 12, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now here is a statement from the world's perspective that is counterintuitive. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Blessed are, people, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me? That's counterintuitive from the world's perspective. But I'm concerned that even we American Christians don't accept what Jesus says here as straightforwardly as we ought. You are blessed... And you should rejoice, American believers, when people lie about you and insult you and mistreat you for being a Christian. Is that true? Yes. You're blessed. How? Well, it's evidence that you actually are a Christian, verse 10. It's evidence that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you through Christ. And you're blessed because there is reward in heaven... Verse 12, for people who are persecuted for Christ on earth. And you're blessed because you are also getting, when you're mistreated for Christ's sake, you are getting to join in the experience of the great prophets of old, like Jeremiah, who was thrown into a pit, and like Isaiah, whom tradition says was sawn in two. Not to say that we should ask for persecution, not to say that we should somehow long for persecution. And not to say we shouldn't seek redress against it in the court system. But let us be careful, we Americans who are blessed with so many privileges and who breathe, thankfully, breathe a cultural air that is heavy on our civil rights. Let us be careful that we aren't more American in this regard than we are Nazarene. Let us be careful that when persecution comes, we don't find ourselves whining or resorting to the legal and political systems so passionately that we forget to rejoice and to accept that we are blessed to suffer for Jesus' sake. So there you have it, eight Beatitudes, eight beautiful Christian characteristics accompanied by eight corresponding blessings. And I say that we should be drawn to this life because the life itself is beautiful. Poverty of spirit, humility before God, mourning for sin and rightly mourning for the effects of sin in this world, gentleness, meekness, hungering and thirsting for what is right and to be declared right in God's sight, mercy toward others, purity, not only in our actions but in our hearts. Peacemaking between men and men and going about with the gospel which declares that men may have peace with God through Christ. 
a willingness to be persecuted for the sake of this Christ. These things are beautiful, both to God and hopefully to ourselves as well. And we should be drawn to this life as well because the blessings attached to it are marvelous. This truly is the blessed life.